Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And we welcome you back to this trek through David Lynch's imagination. Trek. Um, it's been a week since we entered season two. A whole week. A whole week. And how has your week been, sir? I've actually had a fairly good, very busy week. Fairly good, very busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other way around. That could work, yeah. <laughs> you have anything you want to discuss? Oh, I have something I would like to say. All right. Uh, I had looked at our iTunes page mm-hmm. um, last week as I was posting this episode, and I'd seen lovely uh, Picky Pockets had given us a, a review previously, and we had uh-huh. said thank you, thank you, you know who you are. And... There's another review, another five-star review, and I don't know who it's from, but thank you so much. I'm so excited that you're listening. Um, Reach out, say hi. Find us on Facebook. Uh, We really appreciate the the review and the stars, both of those things. Okay. I'll have to look at it myself. Yeah. I'll send you a link. No, I had a very busy week. We went to go to the movies. We did go to the movies. Twice. We did go to the movies twice. And the first time we were supposed to meet up with Piggy Pockets? Herself, in the flesh. Piggy Pockets and Co. Yes. Well, um, they arranged to see a movie with us. And then, for some really odd reason, there were two showings in two separate towns simultaneously. And Yeah, usually it's off by like 15 minutes. Right, exactly. So if you say we're going to the 5 o'clock show... You can figure out which 5 o'clock show that is. Right. Instead, we went to two separate 5 o'clock shows that were showing simultaneously on the same night. Yes. And for some reason, we did not coordinate this well. We wound up watching Insidious 4. Insidious 4 is the last key. The last key, which is difficult for me because I work in a locksmith shop, so it felt like keys followed me home. Oh, yes, they did. Yes, they did. Keys and padlocks. That's what the horror movie was about. And... Oddly, as we were having this experience, simultaneously, Picky Pockets and company were having the same experience somewhere else. Yep, in Berkeley. We were in Oakland, they were in Berkeley. Like an episode of Twin Peaks, only without the sense of humor. I don't think either of us is going to be recommending Insidious 4 at the end of this episode. Um, it... It's fine. (laughs) I think what the... What I got from that film... And I enjoyed it, but it was very ephemeral. I'm not going yep. to... It went in my eye holes, and now it is gone. Right. It, it's not going to be something where I will um, remember it for very long. Yeah, or feel the need to revisit it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the, the cinematic equivalent of what you have in the background while you're vacuuming in the living room. Yeah, um, some white noise. Some but horror it white wasn't noise. bad no. at all. It's just that there was nothing particularly... Uh, these films, the Insidious films, and more The Conjuring have been really great at just um, keeping a kind of a, a running mill of shock scenes and yeah. things They're, that were exciting. They use music pretty well. A lot of right. They still did this one, too. The problem with this one, I think, was, I, although I do love the main character, Elise, mm. an older woman right. as a main character in a horror movie, is interesting. Um, but we knew, and they placed it pretty expositorily between a previous movie and before 
the original Insidious movie. And so you know that she's going to be fine. Right. And her cohorts are going to be fine because they're fine in the other movies Uh, that you've already seen. The problem with the prequels is it's very low stakes. Mm -hmm. There's not really a danger of something happening. I did like the fact that we went into this character's backstory. We learned more about her. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think that family drama took away from the actual spookiness. Yeah. And that's something that you always have to balance when you're doing a story like this, trying to make it compelling enough for people who are going to be there to see the drama around the spooky stuff. And it's almost as if the ghost kind of elements or the spooky parts got sort of pushed into a corner and rushed through at the end. Yeah. And there was nothing in this film that we hadn't seen in the other three films. True. Um, The film previous to this was, was it Dermot Mulroney? Uh, that sounds right. And um, the girl plays daughter. There was really, that was a very creepy thing where... And uh, that was also a prequel, but it felt more uh, because urgent. You, well, you identified the story wasn't about Elise and That's her true. friends. It was about this young girl and her attempt to communicate with her mom. And so she was the center of the story. And so That's there true. were stakes whether or not her and her husband, or excuse me, her father. her father were going to get out of it. And... In this one, because you know that the story is centered around the main character who you know is going to come back for two other films, it just, yeah, there was not really as much at stake dramatically. Yeah. You know that everyone's going to survive. It was like an episode of a TV show. Yeah, it was. Know, that is what it felt an like. An episodic TV show that we you Pretty know. short. It, they did do, you know, mm-hmm. some of the insidious tropes of there's a lot of jump scares, and then mm-hmm. when you sort of are feeling... Um, pretty creeped out they give you a like a full screen image of a goofy almost minstrelly face like mm-hmm. a almost like a clown right. uh, not a scary clown it's a demon face but right. it's so silly that it sort of offsets the discomfort that a lot of the other things that the movies do the their ghosts are typically pretty they're so creepy yeah they don't use the, there's a particular image, or, or not image, there's a particular effect that started being used in the mid-90s, I think, on House mm-hmm. on Haunted Hill, the one with... Tay Diggs. Tay Diggs. I'm sorry, Tay Diggs. Oh, and I Yeah, House on Haunted Hill was never my favorite of either the remake or the original. No, but um, there's... 13 Ghosts was, I felt, right I away. I love 13 Ghosts, and I was just listening to a show where... Yeah. They said that that was like the scariest movie to that person. Like well, something about that movie. There is are very some scary. horror movies that you're not expecting it, it and they might just have been. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. They just sort of get you by the throat. For me, it was Event Horizon was a lot scarier yeah. than I had any idea that it uh, was going to be. Yeah, Thirteen Ghosts was one, uh, and that's what made the, House on the remake. Hill, right. That's what made House on Haunted Hill sort of disappointing because 13 Ghosts was amazing. I, but 13, Mm. or what I was saying about House on Haunted Hill is there is a, an effect that they started using in that movie and use pretty regularly now where they like basically shake the film, like shake the image. Mm -hmm. So it looks like a flickering, uh, it's very unsettling to me. That is very scary to me. Even if the movie, any, everything else in the movie is not frightening, right. that image unsettles me a great deal. When I saw Hellraiser for the first time, the original film, which mm-hmm. is really disturbing, one of the Cenobites, these demon characters, 
had chattering teeth. I had yeah. no idea why that bothered me That's so much. That's the scariest one to me, too. Yeah, I don't know why, because on the one hand, there's almost I feel a, bad for Pinhead. I'm like, I, I bet your head, I bet your face hurts. Yeah, I, I just, I don't but know. But that chattery teeth thing is. Why that one, for some reason, was the most grotesque of all of them I, to this day. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, um, we saw that movie. Yes, we did. And we also saw Star Wars. The, the, the Last Jedi. Movie. We'll talk about it later. Mm-hmm. Nope. Spoiler. You're getting nothing out of me. (laughs) So today, we're going to talk about things that aren't Insidious or Star Wars. Well, we may talk about both of those things, it turns out. But we are here to talk about... What number? How do we number it? It's season two, episode two. We did say we were going to be watching two episodes at a time to sort of rush through. But we watched this episode, and there's... We've cha- I've changed our mind, <laughs> I guess I should say, for a couple of reasons. One, this episode didn't bother me. Like, I'm not going to be Grumpus McGrumpface because this felt like an episode of Twin Peaks instead of an episode of Bonkers Lynchland for no reason. There were some things, and we'll get to it, but it wasn't too, too bad. And last week's episode was so long, and if we did two episodes... Or two, yeah, if we did two episodes, then we're reaching into asking our listeners to listen to, like, crazy long things. Crazy so long. We're trying to respect your time and ours. So we only watched one episode, which is known as episode nine. Mm-hmm. It is the tenth episode, or the second episode of the second season. I think this bothers you more than it should. It's a ludicrous way for them to... But it's perfectly consistent with the world of Twin Peaks. Fair. Um, so would you please read us the synopsis of this episode called Coma? In the midst of the murder investigation, the aftermath of his shooting, Cooper receives the grim news that his insane former partner, Wyndham Earl, has escaped from a mental asylum. Meanwhile, Donna's first day as a Meals on Wheels volunteer leads to an eerie meeting with an old woman and her grandson. Audrey uncovers more about Laura's double life at One-Eyed Jack's, while her investigation becomes increasingly dangerous. So that is, not a lot happened in this episode. Which is what I liked. I think last episode was far too, there was a lot that happened, and it happened very rushed. It did feel rushed, but it didn't feel like they did enough at the same time, Mm -hmm. and they left some holes open that they should have closed already, although that happens again this time, and we'll Mm -hmm. get to that. This episode first aired on the 6th of October, 1990, which was a Saturday. So I guess we've... It premiered on Sunday, and then I expected it to go back to Thursdays, but apparently, nope, Saturday night. And all the stuff was the same. I was looking... Did want to kind of Casey Kasem the top 10 songs in the U.S., because there are some good ones, man. Number nine was Do Me by Belle Biv DeVoe. Ice Ice Baby was number seven. I Don't Have the Heart by James Ingram is number five. I love his weird voice. It's like it comes from his throat and not his diaphragm. Um, George Michael's Praying for Time, which is a song that I do not recall, was number two. And Maxie Priest's Close to You was number one. Number one. So I just thought that was fun. And in this episode, uh, we start, we open, I was going to say, I felt like I had to fast forward through the opening, it was like the um, credits this time, 
because it felt like they were going on forever. And I don't know if they did get longer, but I don't have the patience for 90 seconds of... It's a nature documentary. It's bonkers. And I also, the music, like, creeps me out a little bit. So It's working. We open at breakfast at the Great Northern. Cooper is eating, from what I can tell, one of everything on the menu. Yeah, it seems to be. It's a crazy amount of food in front of him. Uh, he's having a breakfast with Albert um, and talking about basically the history of Buddhism. Like, he just starts... Tibetan Buddhism. Tibet, specifically Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, Albert does not care. He does not care. He does refer to King... Oh, let me see if I can... I'm going to mess this up. King Hathatha Wignamputsan and the Happy Generations. He refers to King him as King Ho-Ho-Ho, which is, you know, not very respectful. Then he says, how about we get down to business and I tell you what the autopsy on Jacques Renault says. And he says that, well, he starts, is that, does he start, he starts with saying, I have his stomach contents. And then he lists like a license plate. He lists uh, some of the things from Jaws. From jo- it was from Jaws. And that's from, what I thought. Uh, actually from Pinocchio. And he does includes, say Pinocchio, yes. You know, so he's on a, a and, theme there. And Cooper's like, it's a joke. You've made a joke. Um, Albert does clear up. He wasn't strangled. Yep. He was smothered. So that was finally, I can get off that particular issue because it was bothering me. I'm sorry that it bothered you so much. It's fine. Um, The killer wore gloves and the tape used to bind his wrists were stolen from the hospital supply cabinet. And that's all they know. Um, Albert also says the mill fire was definitely arson and nominates Leo Johnson as the obvious suspect. They say, oh, we should uh, interview Shelley. Um, and I'm like, yeah, you should definitely do that. Maybe in this episode? Hello? No? You're just going to let her? Okay, that's fine. Um, and they also know that Renat Pulaski has woken from her coma, but she isn't speaking yet. And finally, Albert says he's not just there for, you know, doing his duty, but he's also there to let him know that Wyndham Earl, which mm. sounds like a title and not, or a place and or not a, a person. Or a very expensive sweater. Yes. Or like maybe like a knitting stitch or something. That's right. Wyndham Earl, who we find is Cooper's ex-partner, who retired... Uh, Albert says to the local Laughing Academy. He's laughing been, Academy, like a bug house, yeah. Yes, exactly, like a bug house. Very terrible ways to indicate some sort of asylum, some sort of mental institution. Um, he's broken out, and so now we don't know where he so is. So there's the assumption that Albert is there to protect him, protect him, or act as bodyguard, or perhaps Wyndham Merle is the person who shot him, and that's what he's investigating. That's a possibility. When uh, Cooper asks, do we know who shot me? He's, he doesn't know. Mm. Um, that's when Wyndham Earl, the conversation segues to Wyndham Earl. And so there's a suggestion that maybe this is the guy who shot him? I think he's widening the suspect pool. I think Albert pretty much thinks anybody in this town could have shot him. Right. Um, and also this one other dude. <laughs> 
And we don't know how tall he was, but we know that the suspect is between 5'6 and 5'10 from the prior episode. Um, then we go over to Donna's house. No, it's not Donna's house. Donna is uh, doing her Meals on Wheels rounds. And she takes a tray of food to a woman named Mrs. Tremond, um, who lives, or at least is with, uh, someone we assume to be her grandson, a little red-headed boy in a bow tie? In a full suit. He was in a full suit. He's but... practicing to be a magician. Oh, that's right. Which is My grandson is studying ma- magic. Either that or he's studying to be a ventriloquist dummy. Miss Tremond has a minor freak out that there's creamed corn on her plate. Do you see creamed corn? Creamed corn. There's creamed mm. corn. I asked for no creamed corn. And then Pierre says... Abracadabra, he doesn't. He says, sometimes things can happen just like this. And the cream corn disappears from the plate and ends up in his hands. Ew. That's not a thing you want to it's hold. It's not sanitary, no. <laughs> now, I didn't know if she actually had a freak out or if she believed that, or she was trying to show off her Maybe, the magic but trick. she was, she... She seemed distressed, but I don't know if that was... Was distressed, or was... Part of the drama. Trying, but distressed, yeah. yeah. Donna asks this lady, do you know Laura? And she says, she's dead. <laughs> I think it was the, her, the full of her extent. And then she says, ask Mr. Smith next door. He was Laura's friend. Mr. Smith never leaves his house. Of course he doesn't. Um, as Donna heads to the door, the little boy says in French, I am a lonely soul. Uh, Donna goes next door, knocks, no one answers, so she leaves a note. We go to Ronette Pulaski's hospital room. Sheriff Truman and Cooper are having an awkward fight with some stools. It's very protracted, that, that part of the scene. It's like three and a half minutes long. Now, mind you, again, this is directed by David Lynch. It yeah? is. This episode was so directed by David Lynch. it does tend to have that strange kind of um, atmosphere that he creates by having people struggle with just simple, everyday things. Yeah. As you see with Andy later. Um, so, finally, they settle themselves. And she can't talk, but she kind of nods and can blink, yes. Cooper wants to show her two pictures, one of Leo Johnson and one of Bob, um, based off of the drawing that Sarah Palmer had done, or had told the sketch artist to do, and that he confirms. The the drawing of Leo Johnson was not as good as the drawing of Bob. Well, of course not. The drawing of Bob was also very dramatic. I also (laughs) don't understand why they used a picture a drawing of leo johnson when they have him down the hall in a coma and could have taken a photo i understand they don't have cell phones so oh, maybe he not. had mug shots so they could have shown him that too also Sh- that shown her that too right? yeah also that instead we're just going to have a drawing it's yeah and not a great one i mean you could kind of make out of that it was him right. they also like the hair situation was just pulled like right. it looked just short because it, of course he wears it pulled back in the ponytail which is kind of a big, mm-hmm. like, detail that is lost in that picture. So she kind of is like, no, this isn't the person that hurt me. But then when she sees the picture of Bob, she starts freaking out and saying, chur, chur, chur. And um, Cooper thinks that he's saying, she's trying to say train That's or train car. It, yeah. But she is, she, like, she knocks out her IV. I don't know if her convulsing causes the power to go out or, like, the... She knocks out a, the lamp or something, but the light goes out as well. 
We go back to the Great Northern, and Jerry and Ben Horn are trying to decide what to do. So they've got the fake ledger that makes the mill look like it's profitable, that Catherine had been doctoring for however long. And then they've got the real ledger that shows the mill is not wonderful, not super profitable. And then also in the room is a pig made out of smoked cheese. (laughs) Because that's what Jerry is gnawing on. Um, because all he eats apparently is novelty foods. I have to say, this scene, it went on too long for me. Any scene with just the two of them right. tends to go on a little. Because long it was for me. very surreal. There's no, um, I mean, it's almost as if they're talking to the camera because they're facing in the same direction. It does, and 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 almost in like a like, like a like they're elbowing you in the right. side like hey get a load of what we're doing there's and a real feeling of that it feels sort of like two characters on a like a morning radio show trying to yeah. outdo each other with being smarmy or silly but they're not i they're mean not, they're smarmy they're, but not they're not particularly entertaining though. no and so their two pe- their two man act is beginning to to it wears me a little bit there because there's nothing really what they're doing is giving exposition first of all we know that Catherine... Yes. In their view, is dead. They believe Catherine to be dead. Right, yes. which would be a great pity because I liked her as yeah, awful as Piper she was. Laurie, not liked terrible. her as a character, but liked Piper Laurie and all the sort of like um, her machinations. Yeah. And so they're discussing it. There's this weird aside about the pig, how it can't be burned, and it's a lot. Yeah, he of, says one thing: something has to be burned, hmm. and it won't be this pig. Nom, nom, nom. And the fact that they're just like the gang who sh- couldn't shoot straight. They they can't make up their mind which no, of the two. No, because, and it kind of makes sense, because mm. they've got this doctored book that makes the mill look profitable. Now, if they're trying to sell the mill, the idea is right. Josie will cash in on the million dollars that Catherine uh, left, quote unquote, left to her with the insurance. They don't know yet that that hasn't been signed and isn't active. But Josie will get the million dollars and then sell the the mm. land and the mill to them, and then they can not Welsh on whatever deal they have with the Icelanders to right. sell them the thing that they don't own. And then, but the other side is, and and they think that uh, sales will go better, it, like the property looks better mm-hmm. if it's profitable at Bull Mill. Now, if they're just going to bulldoze it and make a development, I don't see why that matters. So the other side is, but these books, like the real book, would stand up to scrutiny and we don't need people right. looking further into our dirty business to find our other dirty business. So that would be an okay thing to hang on to. Um, and then finally, Ben just goes over to his desk and like a monster pulls out a bag of marshmallows. Monst- oh, explain why it's like a monster. Because who has a bag of marshmallows in their desk? Nobody. A monster. <laughs> And so they, I guess they're going to roast marshmallows on hickory sticks. At the double R, Andy <laughs> is, has an entire roll of tape wrapped around his body trying to tape up a Have You Seen This Man poster uh, with a picture of Bob on the front door. And the log lady comes in and six sex to Bobby's dad, Major Briggs. Norma Strait calls her out on spitting her gum out um, and putting it on the wall and uh, in the booths. She's like, we'd love to have you, but could you dispose of your gum sanitarily if you're going to? Because, ew. And the log lady doesn't love that, but she does say, I'd like a bear claw. And then she tells the major that her log has something to tell him. 
She asks, do you know the log? And it's quite a message, too. And the major humors her and says that they haven't been introduced, but that doesn't humor her because she's like, I don't introduce the log. And then she says, can you hear it? And he's like, no, ma'am, I cannot hear the log. And she's like, I'll translate. And she says, deliver the message. And he takes a moment and he's like, no, I know exactly what this log is trying to tell me. So and then we go to the sheriff's office and Andy was pacing around outside tape on his head. He's got the rest of it off, but there's still a piece on his head. And Andy finally goes up to Lucy's desk, and Lucy's like, there's no messages for you, officer. And she, and he and then he, and she like closes her little glass sliding door. And then he opens it, and he's like, Lucy, once upon a time, he doesn't once upon a time it, but basically he says, they were looking for sperm donors, and I went to do my duty, and because he loves wells. Because he loves wells. I don't understand. And they told him that he was sterile. And he says, Sure, at first I thought that meant I didn't have to take a bath. But then the doctors told me the truth, that I can't have babies. I Those love two that. things are not mutually exclusive. It's true. And actually, they might go together. So then he just straight up looks at Lucy and is like, So I don't understand how you're having a baby. And she's just like... And then closes the glass thing again. <laughs> so that's the end of that conversation. But yeah, hey, Lucy, you want to be mad at me because I responded badly, but I responded the only way I could because I'm shooting blanks and yet you've been shot. So what's the deal? Shot fatally. I, I um, yeah, I just saw this as um, evidence that uh, that God wants to stop Andy from reproducing. I would agree with that, but I also kind of think that Lucy might be having Andy's baby. Somehow? Yes. Like, I don't think that she stepped out on him. I don't know. I don't know their life, because I can't even tell when they're together or not. Having seen him, I wouldn't blame her. Aw. Look around at the other people in the town. Yes, it's a town full of really attractive women and duncey men. Of course, the really attractive women are also kind of duncey, too. Duncey's. I can understand Albert's point of view much more. And then we are go into, yes, well, uh, then we go into Truman's office, and Harry has Hank sign his little, I was, I showed up for my parole hearing, um, or, you know, my parole visit. So apparently Truman is his parole officer. Right. As he, they don't really say anything to each other. I think he says, uh, Lucy probably told you to wait outside, right? Because he's in his office when nobody else is Admiring there. Admiring the buck that's top there. <sighs> with hunting humor um and then hank leaves and cooper's like interesting how long have you known each other or how you know and then harry's like yeah we we grew up together and hank used to be a bookhouse boy one of the very best and then we get a phone call and ben horn is calling to report that his daughter is missing and he says something like could be for as long as two days <laughs> because i don't pay attention to my family at all. And I've got other things to do. Then we go back to Ben's office, and Jerry comes in with the unsigned insurance policy. And they're like, oh, well, uh, why is it unsigned? And and Jerry's like, well, the uh, broker says that Catherine was concerned about some inconsistencies, like the fact that Josie is the, pro- the main beneficiary 
And Ben's like, well, he wasn't supposed to see Catherine or talk to Catherine about that, but since Catherine's dead, oh well. Like, this works out fine for them, because now, presumably, Josie would be more willing to sell them the mill because she's going to be hard up for money. She's mm-hmm. not going to have this extra windfall of a million dollars. The other thing that we didn't say in the last scene was not only does Josie have to sign over the mill, Pete has to sign over the mill because there is a clause in Josie's uh, deceased husband's will that was Catherine or Catherine's heirs have to sign off on any major decisions with the mill, which I would assume would be selling it or Mm. selling it. (laughs) That's pretty much the big decision you can make. And then Leland Palmer, like, just bulldozes into the room and is like, I've been thinking we really need to smooth things over with the Icelanders. I'm sure everything's going to be fine, but we just need to smooth things over. And they've already dialed the phone to call the the head Icelander and find out that they already know that there was a fire. And how did you know that? Leland called them and told him, oh, told them that there was a Mm -hmm. fire. So, way to go. Um, So Ben suggests that Leland keeps things simple for now uh, and focuses on things like doing his taxes. And then, but then Leland has zoomed in on a piece of paper and he goes across the room and he picks up the Have You Seen This Man poster with Bob on it. And he says, he knows this man. Uh, this person lived next door to his grandfather's house at Pearl Lake uh, when he was a little boy. And as after he leaves, he says he's going to go tell the sheriff. And then Ben says to Jerry, please kill Leland. And then Jerry says, is this real life or is it all a dream? And then I almost stopped it and went, if this is all a dream, I'm going to punch everyone. (laughs) I believe that at this point, that seems to be the best explanation. We're not going to do an it was all a dream. No, no, I don't think it ever goes that way. But everything in here feels like a dream. The sort of... This entire episode is called coma. Right. So this could all be in Cooper's head while he's laying on the ground. But you notice how everything in this town seems very exaggerated. Yes. And also really kind of hyper-emotional for no particular reason. And so it does feel, when he said that, something clicked in my head, like maybe I'm just watching these people having a corporate dream, or maybe then the the mystery is who's dreaming. Yeah. So then we go back to the hospital, and uh, Doc Hayward shows Leo to Shelley, and Leo is still in a coma, um, they don't know if he's going to come out of it or when he'll come out of it. Um, he is afraid that there's permanent brain damage, uh, given the amount of time that he was without blood, mm. the amount that he bled before they could do surgery. And then we go to One-Eyed Jacks, and Audrey is scheming. She grabs a bucket of ice from one girl and it's like, I'll take over. And they're like, okay, but look out for that one. And then she goes into a room where Emery Battis, the man that recruits girls from the, the store, is tied up, blindfolded. There's another girl in there vacuuming. 
which apparently is part of the thing. Yeah, it's like white noise. And she's like, go. And the girl who's vacuuming is like, no, like over and over again. Like it was an extended period of time. And then she unplugs the vacuum and he's like, where's the vacuum? And she's like, well, I have ice. And she... um, I don't want to know what Mr. Frost is. um, And then he gets excited and he's like... He ta- yeah, he says Mr. Frosty is there, and we don't know what any of that means. And then and that's, I'm happy for that. Audrey wraps the vacuum cord around Emery's neck and says, "Hey, remember me?" Um, and then tell me everything you know about the department store and the perfume counter and Laura and Ronette and One-Eyed Jacks. She he confirms that yes, your dad owns this place. That seems to cause her some discomfort. Yeah, but she already knew it. But what's worse is, did he know that Laura worked here? Right. Yes, because he breaks in all the girls, basically. That's not, he says he entertains, entertains them, but This is a male word. Right. The female word would be disgusts. But. <laughs> well, um, and that Laura was only there for one weekend. She was high, and so they kicked her out. And he says that Laura always got away, just like Audrey. And then we're back with Bobby and Shelly parked in a car. Now, the first thing I thought was, why are you in a car? She's got a whole house, and her husband is not coming back to it. So why are you making out in a car? Because they're children, and they don't know how to make Because it's the 1950s in Twin Peaks, and people make out in cars at Inspiration Point. She's like, I want to get comfortable. And he's like, that's why I brought the bigger car. And I'm like, or you could literally go to her house. Where there are rooms, whole rooms, where nobody is. Well, not all of them are constructed, to be perfectly fair. That's but fair. Yes. Bobby has called Leo's insurance, and apparently he will receive disability, over $5,000 a month in disability, mm. provided he's not in jail. So if he is pressuring Shelley to let him convalesce at home, mm. and then she can just collect his money. And live off of it. And by she, I mean he. Because that's definitely who he's looking out for. And Shelly is like, I don't... I want to tell people what he did to me. And I want him to go to jail or not be around me. I don't want to be a caretaker for a vegetable for the rest of my life. But then, kissy kissy, and then they totally are going to have sex. Kissy kissy. Dave, kissy kissy. And then we go back to Cooper. He's in his hotel room, and he's talking to Diane about... With Wyndham Earl's disappearance, and also that he's worried about Audrey, who's missing, right? Uh, his face when they find out that Audrey is missing is very good. He's like genuinely concerned. And he says, Oh, I find myself thinking not of clues, but just the content of her smile. So sweet. And this is the reason why I'm very disappointed at the direction. Yeah, that well. They didn't take the direction that. Obviously, also, the story was leading up to. They shouldn't, though, because he's got to be in his 30s, and she is 18, and that right. is not okay. Then Major Briggs knocks on the door. Cooper, Edward's genius, asks who it is before just opening his door. Uh, Might get you shot. Yeah, turns <laughs> out. Um, and he says he's Major Briggs, and he has a message for him. He works with the Air Force, monitoring the gibberish from space, basically, is what he right. does. He's like SETI or something. And... Um, the night before, about when he got shot, out of all the gibberish and noise, there's a clear message, and the message is, the owls are not what they seem. 
And he says, well, why are you telling me this? And he goes, well, because later your name came up and it just says Cooper, 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 and my speech impediment's back uh, a whole bunch of time, times. Okay, then we're at Donna's house. No, but we should go back to that for a second. Okay, we're going to go back to Cooper and the Cooper, aliens. Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. Was this a moment that lost you? It didn't. Now, if we find out that it is, in fact, aliens, I am going to be pissed for all of the reasons I set forth in mm-hmm. last week's episode. Um, I don't think that's fair. We're not playing fair. We have not had an alien situation at all in this show. And to just all of a sudden be doing that today, I don't love. Now, I don't mind it if it's just the universe telling Cooper to listen to this giant. I'm kind of okay with that. Whatever the universe... And even if it is Whatever the giant is, I... This is all, yeah, this is all going into very strange territory. It's become very surreal. I didn't have a frustration with it yet, but I can see, like you said, it depends on how this develops. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually, I'm okay with it just being the second thing that the giant mm. said is right. coming to fruition through a weird means. But if then it turns out that the aliens are behind all of the things, then I'm going to be miffed I think is the word I'm going to use and I can certainly see and people have told me about this the influence on uh, the X-Files oh yeah for sure I can really see it now and there's these strange mysteries these dangling threads are left hanging that are never solved or resolved maybe they will be maybe they will be I mean we got we got we've been getting closing chunks of things like clarifying chunks of things in the last two episodes so then we go, I guess we're at Donna's house. Yeah, we are, because she answers the phone there. That's right. Her dad puts a call through. Yeah. But first, thing. the worst happens. Okay, um, James and Maddie and Donna are singing. James is playing the guitar. James sings in a weird falsetto, and then Maddie and Donna are his backup singers. And the entirety of this song is made up. First of all, they've just finished singing it through, and he's like, that was great, let's go one more time. The entire song is just you and me together forever in love. Those are all the lyrics, right? Just just those words over and over. What makes the song very peculiar is it's a very high falsetto. It sounds like someone whose voice hasn't changed yet. Yeah, and there's like a weird echoing thing. Right. The two are harmonizing back backup. They're all singing into microphones that don't appear to be plugged into some any sort of speaker or anything. So I don't understand. Well, we've that. had no lead up to this scene at all. Nope. And then the two the girls when they're singing, um, it's this very almost like Both they're of humming. Them looking at him, look right. at him, and are staring at him. And Donna is staring at him because she's like. This is my man, and I love him forever. Maddie's staring at him like, this is Donna's man, but I might love him forever. And James starts out looking at Donna and ends up looking at Maddie, and then Donna, like, freaks out and runs away. And James is like, what's wrong? And she's like, I'm trembling. You made me. And I'm like, oh, and they make out. You made me. Um, 
Which I was wondering about until you stopped wondering. Oh. Maddie is sitting alone, like, listening to them kiss in another room and just being like, well, this is lame. And she's <laughs> she's looking. Oh, first Donna gets a call, so they sort of break it up. Um, Donna gets a call from Mr. Smith, who says that they can. He got her note and would like her to visit tomorrow afternoon. So he, she's going to do that. And then Maddie is sitting on the floor in Donna's living room, sort of looking towards an archway where another room is. And then all of a sudden, Bob walks through the kitchen and then comes right at her like it follows, in a straight line over the furniture that's between them. Right. With like a very... <clears throat> kind of predatory slouch. Predatory, thing. yes, slouch. And, and you're seeing this from Maddie's point of view, so it looks like he's coming right at you. Right. And like he's going to come through the table. It's upsetting. It's very well done, though. There's a lot of horror elements in this. Mm -hmm. It's very funny because we were talking earlier about Insidious. This movie had the scary element that the last Insidious movie was missing entirely, which is just very... And whoever Bob is, he's doing a good job in this and a later scene of being very kind of unsettling and creepy. Yeah. And um, Maddie starts screaming. Right, as she should. And... (laughs) Um, Donna and James come in to like calm her down and he's gone and we don't know if she had a vision we don't know if this dude was in the house and then just disappeared because he'd been quote unquote been in the house before because Sarah Palmer saw her in the, saw him in the same living room right. nope that was the Palmer house this is Donna's house um, and then yeah then we're back at Cooper uh, dreaming he sees the giant telling him the owls are not what they seem, and then he sees Ronette screaming after seeing the, the drawing that she saw earlier, and then you see an image of an owl superimposed over Sarah's vision of Bob, and then Sarah coming downstairs in slow motion calling out Laura's name, which was from the movie, mm-hmm. it's from the very first episode. Um, and then Cooper is awoken by a phone call, and it's from Audrey, who's crying and saying, why aren't you here? And he's like, there's no time for schoolgirl games. I want you home now. Such a dad. <laughs> and she's like, I saw you in your tuxedo. You look, What did she say? You look like a movie star? Something like Something that. Something like yeah. that. And then she promises that she's going to come home, but the call is cut off. And then we are with her in Blackie's office with Blackie and the dude that she just strangled, strangled, didn't strangle. And they're like, they know who she is. They call her Aubrey Horn or Audrey, Audrey Horn. And they're like, you think you're in trouble, but you don't have any idea. Um, And she's crying. Oh, sad. And then that's the end. So she's, yeah, I like the I like she's in they, trouble. I like the entire episode in that it was very balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I feel like like all of it took place over a very short period of time. Right, it Where felt it was, like it just shot right by you. Yeah, and not very much happened. And and a lot of that I think was the extended scenes where literally nothing happens. Like this, the James and Donna and Maddie song was. Two and a half, three minutes. Mm-hmm. The weird conversation between the Horn brothers was two and a half, three minutes. 
And nothing happens or gets resolved in any of that time. No, not really, no. It's just odd for us. Well, it's like they're explaining something that you should already understand as the viewer, that you should put together. Right. Which is um, the options that they have. Right. As in terms of, and to me, burn both of them, frankly. Yeah, that's what I probably Because that way it's a convenient accident. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not, yeah. But um, anyhow. So this This is is, why no one hires me to set fire to buildings. Yeah, well. This is the fourth episode directed by David Lynch. He directs two more. The one where Laura Palmer, the the mystery is solved. And the last episode, which I think are going to be only two of a few more Mm -hmm. things that we're going to be watching. His episodes almost always involve major parts of the show's supernatural mythology. Mrs. Tremond, who I, as soon as I saw her, I was like, I know that lady. Her name is Frances Bay. And when I Googled her at first, it was like, she's small and prolific. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, but she was also in a lot of other David Lynch stuff, including Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart. I um, remember her, I think, as the innkeeper in... In the Mouth of Madness, the John Carpenter film. Uh, that could be. I looked her up. She has like 163 credits right. on IMDb. Is she? There's not a lot that she hasn't been in. And the boy, Pierre, mm-hmm. is played by David Lynch's then 10-year-old son, Austin Jack really? Lynch. Yes. Who looks just like a shrunken version of his dad. And now that I know that, it's true. He does look a lot like him. They don't appear together again in the series, but they are in Firewalk with me, apparently. But by then, Austin had uh, outgrown the part, and so he was replaced by David Lynch's nephew, because apparently David Lynch is not about hiring kids from outside the family. They, oh, apparently the stool thing wasn't scripted. They really couldn't couldn't figure it out, and David Lynch just kept it in. That's the kind of thing I like, actually. I like the, um... I would have liked it if it was, um... 30 seconds less time than it was, I think, probably. It, it went on for a while. Yeah, but I think the thing is that, again, when we've gotten this before, I'm old, mm. so I have the patience for a scene like that that just sort of goes on. It goes almost back to a stage tradition, which something just happens in front of the audience, and it goes on happening as long as it does. Yeah. This was the first episode on their new Saturday schedule, and the rate it did drop sharply. Um, went from 18 million viewers to 13 million, wow. or 14 million viewers, which by today's standards, you get several renewals out of that. <laughs> um, so is that, um, are you saying that we do, we television producers make do with a smaller percentage of the audience? They have to, there's fewer things, to, or there's <clears> more <throat> things to watch. Right. I mean, in 1990, your options were 15 things, right. f- 15 channels maybe, 20. So you ABC, had cable NBC. One, I mean, you had not nearly the proliferation of channels that you have now. Are we even going to talk about who we think? I mean, the the <clears throat> quote unquote mystery isn't solved, but the trifecta of Leo and Jacques and whatever Bob is did it right. Well, and they're not playing fair with telling us what Bob is. Bob obviously is the darkness in the woods. Or at the end of Why? Why is he not an alien? He. The fact that we have to ask that question, <laughs> I think it's that it's problematic. Or is what he's it not is. a giant, possibly giants from outer space. 
He's not a midget. He, and Leland recognized this picture of a person of this age from when he was a child. That was an important clue that we overlooked, mm -hmm. which is that it could be that Bob is more or less a ghost. Mm. That he's Well, um, if it's a spirit of the wood, it would make sense that it wouldn't age like a person. Right. But that it's it's a, something that exists in a kind of an objective reality, at least for Twin Peaks, because Leland's wife saw it very early on in the first season. Well, she saw something that no one else saw in the room. Right. So... But she did see Bob at one point. Yeah, it was that. But mm -hmm. there was nobody else saw him in the room. Yeah. There were other people there. Well, no one else saw it this time either. That's right. So, I think so that is it a person? Is it, it a spirit? At some point it Is it a hallucination? <clears throat> it's not a hallucination because I really do feel there's a connection between it and Leland. So now we're going into this other psychic detective. Is it Karnaki, um, the between it and Leland or is it between it and the Palmer family? It was intent on killing Laura, so mm -hmm. Ronette got to go free. Leland had seen it as a child and Sarah has seen it as an adult. So is it the Palmer family, or is it Leland in particular? Is it hunting the Palmer family and driving them insane? It could be. There's we still need some not more enough... history on Le on the Palmer family. Well, I like. think that's why that moment gave the first kind of um, was sort of intriguing for me because now I'm seeing that it's going in a direction. It's not just sort of the strange character who's showing up, who's the spirit of the woods, the Wendigo, right. or whatever else is. Now it's like connected to the family. Um, who knows? I, there's no way of telling what direction it's going in. I nope. effectively have given this up on trying to guess. This is when you just stand in the middle of the room and spin. Right. You're just like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I think, because he's going to do whatever he's going to do. I'd like to see the ghost get in a fist fight with Bob, refereed by the midget, who spoke backwards. What ghost? Uh, the ghost that, I mean, excuse me, the giant get into a fist fight the with Bob. The giant in the fist fight with Bob. Yes. I feel like Bob fights dirty and probably bites. I am sure he bites, judging from the condition of Laura Palmer's corpse. There's, there's mine a bird. Mm. Mine a bird bites. All right. Do you have anything to recommend? Did you come up with something? There was a, recently a horror film that I really liked, which was uh, Lights Out. Oh, yeah, that was good. Which I really enjoyed because it didn't at any point, it didn't have the pretense of being overly significant. It didn't have the pretense of being um, profound or having all sorts of subtext. It was just there to spook you, and that's exactly what it did. It was creepy. It had a very creepy monster. Yeah. And and uh, uh, really kind of um, amiable leading characters, including a, a model boyfriend for the heroine in the film. Yeah. Who just hits the right notes in terms of being responsible, not yeah. trying to take over the situation. Yeah, he's like a nice guy, and right. I don't mean nice guy, big N, big G, TM, mm. TM, TM, actually a dick. Right. I mean, he's like a legitimately nice he's, guy. Well, what I liked about that is that generally when you have these horror films, and having seen these since I was a kid, um, the male figure takes over the film, rescues the girl, blah, 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 blah. Um, when you have a female lead, she's always in danger and she needs to be rescued. There was a trend starting maybe with Scream, maybe before that some, where the girl gets to rescue herself. This film had a really nice situation where the entire arc of the story or the entire, um, all the central characters are women. 
Yes. Maria Bello was wonderful. Yes. She's always great. And um, and the young actress whose name I forget, and she was really very good and very watchable, playing this sort of young and beautiful and still very burnt out and very kind of damaged by this instances of uh, the supernatural invading her life when she was a kid. And Teresa she gets Palmer. Okay. Her name is Teresa Palmer. She was in the War Bodies movie that I haven't seen yet. But she, yeah, she was very good, and the fact that it involved essentially even the villain is uh, a female character, and yes. it, it's so the male character is peripheral. But he, instead of being the guy who has to rescue the situation in the end, he finds a way of helping that doesn't rob away from what this story is really about, which is about motherhood, and how this young girl winds up having to be a mother to her little brother. Yeah. Who's also played by, like, he's very good as he's well. He's very good. Yeah, everyone is really good in this film. It hits the right notes and it doesn't try to, um, uh, yeah, there's no overriding message it's really trying to hit you over the head with. It's just these compelling characters going through a situation that is downright creepy. And so it works really well. So I think that's probably what I would recommend. It's not really recent. No, it's but, from uh, 2016. But it's new to me. And yeah. Yeah, and I was, like, skeptical. I was like, "Uh, Mm -hmm. is it going to be, like, a dumb thing? And I think it was better than Insidious 4. It certainly was, yeah. Maybe because it's the fourth one. (laughs) The fourth one of a thing is... I think they can... can, There's a... It's never green if you do it right. Right. There's a lot you could do with that material, but I think this was just a misstep because too much of it was family drama and you're waiting for something spooky to happen because there were really good elements and there were really good performances in that film too. Right. But it just, it's almost as if the the supernatural elements or the elements that you went to go see kind of got ignored in favor of trying to make it more of a drama, which Lights Out didn't do. It just went straight forward, went There's, for the judge. I am a, and it was a tight, what, like 91 minutes or yeah, something like that? it was like very that. short. It was very punchy. I like yeah. it. Um, I'm gonna just give a hot take and recommend this new Star Wars movie that mm. everybody's been talking about. Now, what is your history with Star Wars? I did not see it for years. I didn't see it until probably it was 10 years old. And I got to see the film during the video revolution where everyone was getting VHS tapes mm-hmm. that finally occurred to us, oh, we've never seen Star Wars. So we saw it and I liked it. It was very exciting. But by that point, it was already outdated in terms of all the things mm-hmm. that were really revolutionary about it when it first came out. Mm-hmm. And I discovered very shortly that I like The Empire Strikes Back best. Maybe Every, because I, my understanding is everyone does. Well, it's a much better script. Mm. It, the, the, um, the art direction is really beautiful. And for me, lots of stop-motion animation, oh, okay, which I yeah. love. We truly love. There's right. a lot of it in there. And lots of Buddhism. Um, which was really fun because the force was sort of glossed over in the first film, and this time it was there was a. It's not specifically that it makes it sound like I'm a Buddhist, no. But I like the idea that there was a sort of a metaphysical center to the movie. Got you. And the director was a Buddhist, Urban Kirshner. Okay. So he put a I lot of. I didn't even know that somebody other than George Lucas directed the Empire. He had a lot of issues like with George that. Lucas. They fought a lot. Uh, and George so Lucas did, um, seems to have a lot of issues with anybody who's not George Lucas. Or so did Steven Richard Marquand in the third film. There's a very famous People magazine article where the uh, the journalist was on the set watching 
George Lucas walk up behind actors after Richard Marquand had spoken to them and told them to do the exact opposite of what he just oof, told them to do. And he was just a producer at that point and writing. He was right? producing at that point in writing and um but yeah, it's it's very yeah, funny because I don't know deal. exactly why he hired these surrogates essentially if he just wanted to direct the film. Maybe he couldn't maybe they were like, No, you can't direct it. was something it. similar with um the the stories about Toby Hooper or Tobe Hooper and Poltergeist. To- it's Toby. Toby. And Poltergeist, yeah. With, and Steven with... Sp- there's a documentary on the making of the film that I got to see. It was run on uh, TCM one night where you actually see Steven Spielberg directing the film. <laughs> you know, it's like there's all this argument back and forth about who directed it and conversations with Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams who said we didn't know who was directing the movie. Ugh. But, That's um, the worst when you don't know who's in charge. So right, um, yeah. and then you saw the or the the second trilogy. I saw the the this. I didn't see the second trilogy. It was really embarrassing. Even now, you haven't. Seen I it? still haven't seen all of it, which is funny because you think I'd see something with Christopher Lee in it. Yeah, I would. Um, but the first film, I saw about halfway through, and I'm sitting there watching it with. I was married at the time, Stephanie, my wife, my ex-wife, who was Japanese, and watching it with our kid, and the opening scene had these aliens. Speaking oh, with his the super day. racist. You are surprised. We speak uh, yeah. English. What's yeah. your country? That uh-huh. kind of business. And at first we were laughing like, was that deliberate? And it just like, kept like going Like we heard on. that wrong and then right. yeah, no, it's in the No, <laughs> that's not, it wasn't wrong. That's exactly yeah, what they no, were being super, yeah. yeah. And that went on with Jar Jar Binks. It went on with all these other characters who basically it was like watching a movie made in the 40s. It's like watching a movie made in the 40s with Sidney Greenstreet and a bunch of other Peter Laurie all in brown face mm. doing funny accents mm-hmm. and pretending to be in Algiers. Look at That's me, it's remi- funny, it's right. funny. Yeah, no. That's what it reminded me of watching And so you film. tried to watch the first one and then was like... <laughs> it uh, just made no sense. We couldn't yeah. even get through the film. We fair. stopped it. And I didn't see any of the sequels to it just because it was... No, that's fair. I just could not get into it. Um, I'm having much more fun with the ones now. Right, because we watched The Force Awakens together, mm-hmm. and both of us enjoyed it. Um, and we watched Rogue One together, right. and both of us and enjoyed it. And I really it. like Rogue One. I um, think Donnie Yen stole the movie. <laughs> so my history with it is that I think I've probably seen about 70% of the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. I've never seen any of the movies all the way through at one time. Mm. Um, by the time... I was old enough to know what they were. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like it was for me. Then Phantom Menace came out when I was a freshman in college, and I went to a midnight showing with a bunch of friends because that is what you do when you're a freshman in college. Apparently, it's what people do now just regularly, mm-hmm. but at, in 1998 or 1999, it was a very much a college thing. But when I got in there, I probably fell asleep <laughs> through the entirety of the movie. I know that I saw the second of that trilogy. I have zero recollection of it. And then I know that I saw the third one because I walked out um, at a point where a character was about to slaughter many children. And I was like, nope, I don't need to watch this. I'm going to go. Uh, my overarching issue with all of the first six Star Wars films is that the main characters are whiny men who seem to be stuck at about the age of nine, who are generally weak-willed 
and frustrating to watch. And so I did not care to do that. Um, so I love the new ones because, hey, look, there are ladies. And hey, look, there are people of color. And hey, look, the dudes aren't being total... Well, and that's the point that, that Losers. I, I really liked about watching this last one in the theater, the number of Asian people that you saw yeah. in the film. And Those I remember awesome. that one of the complaints that John Brosnan, when he wrote Future Tense, which was a, a really good kind of in review of science fiction movies from the silent period to Star Wars. Okay. And it's one that I always fall back on because there's a lot of good stuff in it. He wrote, after Star Wars, how can you imagine a universe with only white people in it. This yeah. is a white Australian writer. Right. Um, and of course, immediately Lando Calrissian gets um, in, involved, or rather gets uh, introduced in the next segment. So the, <laughs> you had one black guy, and he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> well, even now, like now, uh-huh. the, I mean, there are villains, mm-hmm. and there are people who pretend to be villains, but like, and I've seen a couple of think pieces on the fact that Poe Dameron is, like, the real villain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, because he just can't listen to ladies tell him what to do. Well, he can't listen to anybody. And I, I know, it, that's the thing. It is anybody. I don't think it is just a gender-specific thing. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be that women are the ones that are telling him what to do in this movie. And he's like, but I know better because I'm me. Right. And I'm like, um... Normally, Oscar Isaac, I would 100% be on board with whatever you wanted to do, but you are making bad choices, (laughs) so listen to the ladies, would you please? I have to say, yeah, this film was very uh, uh, female forward. Yep. I liked that part. There were some parts of it that I found, and you know what I'm talking about, involving Leah, just ridiculous yeah, yeah you when you're straining credulity like in a movie taking place in another galaxy with psychic powers and there's a scene where you're like no this is the limit that i can take i was on board although it sets themselves they set themselves up for trouble later with that mm-hmm. scene but that's fine um i enjoyed the porks they were not racist <laughs> they were not racist and there was just enough pork Right. I'm on board with pork. Yeah, I think there was, that was a better decision because, as I was mentioning earlier, when you see that first Star Wars movie, there's lots of Caucasians and the alien species, and that's about it. Yeah, it, that was. There's a casino uh-huh. scene in this one that is harkens back to the cantina scene. Right. I, I assume from the original one, where it's like, look at all the weird. And things. that's funny. The cantina scene was kind of a last minute thing, apparently. They were robbing masks out of Rick Baker's studio. Yeah, that's how. And right. putting them on people. So half of what you saw were Halloween masks. They were not. And this is the reason why in the third Star Wars film, there's the big scene with all the creatures in Jabba the Hutt's fortress because they wanted to go, okay, this is when we actually have money to spend on right. this now. Actual this is not a rush. It had to be shot right away. Yeah. You know. Um, and again, it's like I guess I did like the first series of films back then. My problem with it is the same problem I have with Lucas and Spielberg now, which is when I became a film student, I saw all the films they borrowed mm-hmm. from. Yeah. And some of them, like the Hidden Fortress Kurosawa's film, is a masterpiece. It's, yeah, yeah. And to have but bits and pieces of it ki- scavenged the, for Star Wars the other is thing, really... The thing that doesn't bother me about that is mm-hmm. Star Wars movies are children's movies. They are yeah. for kids. And I keep forgetting that. And people, I think... Literally everyone forgets that. Um, 
a child is not going to sit, a seven-year-old is not going to sit down and watch Hidden Fortress. I had to be a grown-ass person mm -hmm. to sit down and watch that movie. And it is very, very good, mm -hmm. but it's not going to hold a child's attention. And um, particularly not an English-speaking child who well, that's is going to be too, singing yeah. subtitles the entire film. Right. So, and I think people, yeah, I, people put a lot of stock into movies that are children's films. <laughs> um, no. But I don't attach myself to pop culture that way. I understand that people do, and that's fine. That's fine. I also take what the filmmaker gives me, mm -hmm. and then I either like it or don't like it, and then I move on. I don't get mad because they didn't make the exact thing that I wanted them to make. Um, no, I'm saying this strictly as a person who has watched every Godzilla film ever made. Yep. Um, Recently. <laughs> I think that, yeah, within the last week. Um, I think that my issue is with the Star Wars fans, even more than the Star Trek fans, they're the extreme end of fandom. and they Some get, are. Some are. And they're, it's, they're really bothered sometimes if you're indifferent to this. Um, and so when I'm hearing about protests and marches to get different edits of the film out... I saw a fun thing <laughs> where like... somebody had... Some MRA, men's rights activist, had released a cut of the film basically where any woman did anything of agency. It was 49 minutes long. Good That's two hours of film removed. You better believe that Poe Dameron didn't get slapped by anybody in this kind of film. And it's, you know, been done on some sort of DVD rip with subtitles, Chinese subtitles or something like that, because the movie's been out for six and a half minutes. Right. It's not available digitally, but this needed to happen for people to feel comfortable. I, just, I, don't, I don't understand what's the threat. And I, I guess maybe there was a time and that where the fans were mostly male. And um, and you get that out of Return of the Jedi. Why do we need Princess Leia to do a full-on Dejah Thoris, you know, which harkens back to yeah. John Carter. Um, and even the recent do uh, reimagining, re in some cases, of John Carter had her be more than the princess in the steel bikini. But I think they're almost like they're offended that this has been taken out of their hands. It's now for everybody, not just for a group of people. And then having said, yes, the, the new ones are actually are pretty good films. I, I enjoy them. Just, I would enjoy it if it wasn't Star Wars, because I have no personal connection to all these people. I wanted to read you this, because Carrie Fisher is a goddamn treasure. Um, or was. Uh, is. She still is. Um, well, to me, she is. <laughs> she said to the father who was. flipped out about the bikini, the gold bikini, what mm. am I going to tell my kid about why she's in that outfit? She said, tell them that a giant slug captured me and forced me to wear that stupid outfit, and then I killed it because I didn't like it, and then I took it off backstage. <laughs> I'm like, is the slug George Lucas? <laughs> <laughs> That's open to interpretation. Yeah, so, um, but I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. it. It, as in the immortal words of, Leonard Malton, it suffers from over length, but most things do these days. I think it's like what two hours and forty something minutes long. Mm. It's very long, 
a lot of things happen. That's fine. Well, I think though that's the right length for the people who are real fans. They really want to see a movie that it's true, and especially mm-hmm. if they have to wait however long until right. the next thing. I get it, but um, I could watch a two-hour and forty-three-minute Godzilla film. I could do it. I think you have done it mm-hmm. two in a row. Well, if I'm watching two in a row, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't run that long. Um, but yeah, hot take. Pretty good. <laughs> I enjoyed it. So I think that does it for us this week. Mm -hmm. Um, If you like us, tell a friend. If you hate us, tell an enemy. I'm stealing that from somebody, and I apologize. Um, If if you... It's too complicated for me. Tell... I can't even get him to tell people he's on this show. It's really a letdown. Who? You. No, I, I tell people I'm on the show all the time, but I'm just not on social media. I am. Um, I have to say I did have an interesting experience uh, falling asleep in the car. That's not the interesting experience. I do that all the time because I'm a prehistoric beast. Um, and I was awakened by hearing someone in a podcast you were listening to mention you by oh, name. Oh, yep. It's true. And it was Aaron and James from Unabashedly Obsessed with talking about little old me. And that was just so strange. So my, my name came out of our speaker, or my car speakers. It's very funny because I think that you should get all the recognition in the world. But what I mean is that just the, coming to the, the awareness that there are probably people listening to this who I, I will never meet in my lifetime. That is hopefully true. And who, Hi, everybody. Um probably dislike me immediately based on my opinions. That's fine. Everyone. It's unlikely or but I would not be listening. very funny. I, I, it, just that awareness that I'm out there and this very weird private person that I am floating out there somewhere. I, I never... Floating in the interwebs. I, I don't I listen to, to the program because I can't stand the sound of my own voice. It's very frustrating. Guess who does all the editing? Well, but you're good at it. You're so well, good at it. How would you know you've never listened to it? I believe in you. <laughs> All right. Latecomerspod at, on Twitter, at latecomerspod, latecomerspod at gmail.com to send us an email. Um, nobody's ever done that, so that'd be fun if you want to do that. Um, I can be found at Amity Armstrong on Twitter and amityarmstrong.com. Let me walk. I can be found... Um... In a dark theater watching a horror movie? No, yeah, probably. That's, that's probably the case. Um, <laughs> or in our living room watching Godzilla. Well, there's other things I do. I write books. Oh, yes. He does do. write books. If you want to read a book that he's written, look for Sealing Night on Amazon. That's S-E-E-L-I-N-G, night. Which is... Like a, the evening, not like the right, person. Sealing Night, which is a quotation from the Scottish play. We're the, not in a theater. You can say I'm, it by name. Okay, fine. I'm not going <laughs> to jinx you. I get it. I could tell you stories. No, um, you couldn't. It's a yes, lie. I could. I could tell you lots of stories. Uh, none of them would have to do anything with this. With this, no. But uh, yeah, Ceiling Night. Uh, that's uh, Ceiling Night of Psychobantium, which is the first book in a series of books. The second one, which is being done now. There's a Ceiling Night Facebook page, which is just filled with pictures of really weird and strange things. Yeah. Including today a, a doll that wasps have built a nest around an abandoned oh. doll. So it's just like all of your Stephen King nightmares put in, yeah, that into terrible. one image. But yeah, Ceiling Night. Ceiling Night. It's on Amazon. Check it out. Um, thank you for 
listening. Thank you to Freak Show Fandango for our theme song, Late As Usual. Probably hearing it right now. And that'll do it for this week. And next week we're going to watch another episode and try and figure this madness out. So thanks for joining us. We love you very much. I say that like it's not true, but it's true. And remember, better late than never. You didn't say it. Say it. <laughs> better late than never. We did it. We did. <laughs>